Hi, my name is Hamza Khan, and I'm about to have a productive conversation with Mike Vardy. Welcome to A Productive Conversation. It's me, Mike Vardy, and I am joined today by Hamza Khan. Uh, he is a best-selling author and global keynote speaker whose TEDx talk, Stop Managing, Start Leading, has been viewed nearly 2 million times. We touch on that during our conversation. We touch on ego. We touch on productivity. We touch on journaling. Lots of things we discuss. His book that we're going to be talking about is Reinventing Leadership. And he's written other stuff as well. We could have gone on for a long time because he's also written about burnout in his previous works. Uh, he is a top-rated university educator. He is a respected thought leader whose insights have been featured notably in media outlets like Vice, Business Insider, Globe and Mail. He is also the co-founder of Skill Camp, a leading soft skills training company. We talk about hard skills and soft skills in this episode. So much more. Let's get to it. Here's my conversation with Hamza Khan. Enjoy. Hamza, thanks so much for joining me today on the program. We're going to geek out about a bunch of things. Uh, <laughs> we were just chatting before we hit record uh, about productivity. We'll get into that. I want to get into uh, the book that I'm holding in my hands right now. I would say hot little hands, but it's starting to cool down here <laughs> in Victoria, BC. Uh, Leadership Reinvented, How to Foster Empathy, Servitude, Diversity, and Innovation in the Workplace. Thanks for joining mm -hmm. me today. Oh, man. Thank you for having me. I'm getting giddy with excitement because in the pre-call, there were possibly a hundred different directions that this podcast could go in. And hopefully we have an opportunity to collaborate again for future episodes because we could talk productivity, we could talk sports, we could talk multitasking. I mean, I'm super excited, but thank you for investing the time to read Leadership Reinvented, my second book. And I'm just so grateful to have uh, an opportunity to, to share these insights with your audience. Thank you. No problem at all. I, I, one of the things that I, that right out of the gate, um, in 2015, you, which, which uh, you have a Ted talk, TEDx talk. I do. Polarizing. No, nonetheless. <laughs> Stop managing, start leading. And I love, that's the first thing that caught my eye. And it's literally in the introduction of the book. So before we even hit page one, it's actually Roman numeral page eight, but <laughs> when I hit it and it's funny because we get, this is where we can kind of also talk a bit about time management because I don't believe that time can be managed. I think time yes. can be led. I think it can be crafted. And I think the important mm -hmm. thing is to manage your relationship with time. Um, that's what you can do. Uh, when you said stop managing, start leading, um, I want, can you give like a, and I'll use a Canadian reference here because we both have, can you have a Coles Notes reference? A Coles Notes version uh, instead of Cliff's Notes? I've not heard that. <laughs> <laughs> because I think that was probably the genesis of what this book, you know, became, right? Like from that, from Absolutely. that talk, right? Absolutely. And interesting that you use lead and crafted. I use carved for time. And I wonder what, because I'm now living in New York, what would we call Cole's notes over here? Would we call the Barnes and Nobles notes? I think they're Cliff's, I no I think they're Cliff notes, aren't Cliff they? notes. There yeah. we go. See, there we go. I learned something new every day. <laughs> yeah. Stop managing, start leading um, was an expression of a feeling that was, I think, eating, eating my insides for a very long time. I never felt fully engaged in any workplace that I was a part of. And I think back to my very first job cleaning computers and I can't even remember the name of the store, but like we had to open up computers, take our little air sprays and dust them off. And I remember being barked at by my manager and being told that I'm not moving fast enough. And it didn't actually inspire me to work harder. I actually compelled me to engage in counterproductive workplace behaviors to 
uh, move as slow as possible and to eventually leave the organization. And then that pattern recurred throughout my career. I felt it in the Canadian Armed Forces. I mean, talk about top-down theory X style of management, you know, people hurling all kinds of insults at you, creative insults till this day that I'm very impressed by. I've been called things that I've never heard. I've never heard those strings of, of words assembled in, in, any, any, in any other realm, maybe Tarantino movies. Um, and then for the first time in my career, when I was at the institution formerly known as TMU, uh, or the other way around, the institution formerly known as Ryerson University, currently known as uh, Toronto Metropolitan University, I felt like I felt like we entered into a new era of employee engagement where I felt like I was not only productive, not only was I loyal, not only was I engaged, I was thriving. And uh, when I looked at that experience and I had time to dissect it, I really understood that the reason why I was feeling this way, why we were performing like the Golden State Warriors, winning back-to-back championships, all kinds of awards being netted, uh, no pun intended, uh, creating blueprints that the rest of the Canadian higher education institution ecosystem was replicating, um, you know, building teams, amassing resources. The reason why we were doing so well could be directly traced to the way the president of the organization led. And then that, those traits and those practices, those strategies and tactics trickled down throughout the organization. And it really activated for me the following idea that how you treat your employees is how they're going to treat their customers. Right. And that's when it became clear for me. It's something that I felt. I didn't necessarily have the concepts or the vocabulary, let alone the research to back that up. But that experience at TMU activated the idea of, hold on, maybe people need to be stopped. Maybe we need to stop managing people altogether because you manage things. You manage budgets, you manage processes, you manage events, but people, people are meant to be led. And when you do the opposite, when you default to managing them, especially when you micromanage them, you disengage them. And that through my research is something that I've learned is the most surefire path to destroying an organization or destroying any endeavor for that matter. Managing to me is, you're right, it's things. It's like processes and things like that. And even that, to that degree, man, I, I the, the term manage just drives me nuts, especially in relationship to time. Because terms like foster, nurture, like things like that, you know, those, even, even with a process, like to foster or nurture a process, what you're doing, I believe, is humanizing it, right? You're, it, when I look at the spectrum of like logic to emotion and then reason in kind of land somewhere in the middle, you're edging ever closer to the idea of reason, you know, the reason area as opposed to pure logic. Like if you manage something, it's like there's, a, there's almost like a coldness to it. And it's mm-hmm. funny because when I worked for Costco, and we talked about this before I hit record, the reason that I moved from, you know, Ontario, like Burlington, which is not too far outside of Toronto, which is where, where um, TMU is, to, to Vancouver, Port Coquitlam, just outside of Vancouver. Uh, the one thing, I kept getting turned down for promotion after promotion. And I knew the area of this department cold. I came in with experience. I knew it well. And the gentleman who was, um, they interviewed me. It was like a, a, the head office uh, supervisor came and interviewed me. And he said, the interview went great. I thought, and at the end he said, Mike, you know, you're not going to get this job. And I, yeah, I'm like, really? Like I, I thought it. And he said, you have all the hard skills in the world, but you don't have the soft skills that you need to be, wow. to lead this department. He didn't say manage. He said lead. And that stuck with me because I, and I think we, the reason I wonder, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. And I, it, I, through going through the book, I know I have a sense what they are, but the reason I think we focus on managing 
hard skills, tra- like those things is because they're quantifiable, right? right? There's a quantity, quantitative element to it. Whereas the stuff you talk about, servitude, innovation, diversity, empathy, which are, you know, they spell the, they spell side and I love me a good acronym. (laughs) Love me. But they're, they are, and they're not purely qualitative, but they have a qualitative slant to them. You can, people have a hard time finding measuring tools for qualitative skills. And I wonder right out of the gate, for someone who wants to transition from this idea of I'm a manager to I'm a leader, is there a is there a tripwire? Is there something that, or is it, is it a set of conditions? Like you mentioned the, the conditions you went through, but every there's nuance across the board. If someone's trying to figure out, okay, I, I've been measuring things quantitatively and productivity does this all the time as, as you and I both know, but how do I lean into the qualitative stuff a bit more and, and know that I'm doing right as opposed to just, you know, checking off boxes? Man, that is uh, an excellent question. If I had to quantify that, that would be uh, the fifteen trillion dollar question. That's the that is the, the the value of the global wellness market, and that's uh, that was the focus of my first book, the Burnout Gamble, which is why is burnout happening? What are the furthest upstream reasons that influence burnout? And I got to the edges of that structure a little bit. I called them competition, alienation, society, technology, loneliness, the economy, but there was a, a level beyond that, and that's the focus of my current research right now. And it's really about this dichotomy of management and leadership and how it was that management evolved, what are its assumptions, and why are certain socially aversive styles of management persistent. And I I imagine you and I came up in, in a similar education system. A lot of it was specialization. A lot of it was just get really good at one thing, develop technical skills, uh, you know, try to synchronize with the job description. And then as far as leadership was concerned, I think we were just we were just learning the things that we were experiencing in the workplace, the way our leaders led us. I don't think leadership was necessarily taught in uh, at any level of the education system. Maybe if you get into a business degree or uh, graduate studies, or if you seek out a specialist program in leadership. Otherwise, I think in my journey, it's yeah. been fairly absent. I'm not sure if that's been true I, for you. I, I think that that just as a quick aside, it, it showed when I was raised in Catholic schools, so it showed up in the religious aspect from time mm-hmm. to time because you would deal with clergy and there's no quantitative element to that. Like they are, they're <laughs> clergy, right? But I can tell you that looking back, there were some flaws there, massive interesting flaws, uh, including one who definitely showed um, that they were the, the most human element of it. Like, you know, they, they, they actually were relieved of duties, not, not in the way that most people, just to be clear, not in like the Catholic scandal way that you, you may have heard. It was just something completely different, but uh, that would be the only way that was the only element that I learned really in terms of, of leadership in a consistent way. Sure. Some teachers along the way would yeah. show it, but that's about it. And there's certainly, it, I mean, again, much like, Things like how to manage, you know, how to quote manage your time or money management. None of that stuff was really taught in school anyway. We had to kind of figure it out on our own. But leadership, definitely, I would agree, other than in that small way. And you had to really be paying attention, I think. That's fascinating. And and you've actually 
activated a memory for me, which was or a series of memories. My earliest exposure to positive leadership traits were stories that I learned in the Abrahamic faiths. I grew up in a Muslim tradition, and so we studied Islam, Christianity, and Judaism, and we share a lot, I think most of, of the, the, the prophets, and their positive uh, human-centric traits of leadership were, were things that resonated with me when I was younger because I, I saw them in contrast to what I was perceiving to be leadership in the form of, you know, the military context, somebody yelling at the front saying, go, 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 jump off this, hel jump off this helicopter or like charge Braveheart or, uh, you know, Gordon Gecko's and greed for lack of a better word is yeah. good. And all of these ideas of leadership are remnants of the first and second industrial revolution. And I think the operative word here is industrial because when you extrapolate that you get industrialization and that's what eventually produced the, uh, the, the, the persistent need to quantify things in the workplace. And, and I think management warped. I think it started with the right idea to, to persuade people to do things, but it eventually warped into managing their time, managing their workflows, it's managing when, their processes. It's when and eventually managing them. Yeah. Like Taylorism showed up and things 100%. like prioritization became like now prioritization got warped and it was no longer about like a single priority. It's like you have to have multiple priorities. So it got completely warped. Like you said. I'm so glad you brought that up, right? I think about the most Taylorist idea out there. And it's an idea that that recurs and it takes on different faces. The most recent iteration came in the form of Jocko Willink's book, The Dichotomy of Leadership. Did you read that one? No, but I know of Jocko's work. I did not I did not dive deeply into it because what okay. was the book he wrote before? What was the other uh, book? Extreme Ownership. That's probably why. Anything that says extreme, I tend to run away from <laughs> yeah. because it doesn't have a sense of reason to me it's like okay no, well, extreme man. is ex extreme to me is not sustainable so th that's why it's called <laughs> yeah. extreme so that i i steer but i am familiar with his work and and some of this believe it or not the things that i've i've taken from him mostly are youtube shorts and tiktok videos that highlight his yeah me like, too. Oh, I, I agree with him what he's saying there <laughs> right but i i couldn't get through a whole book of his no it, I have deep respect for him, especially as you know, I, I was in the reserves. And, and of course, I have a deep respect for, for our, our military. Uh, also, as I'm saying this as a U.S. citizen, um, and I think he's he's a really intense guy. Uh, and if you go on his Instagram, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah, him, he's up him, and three Goggins, in the morning. him and Goggins. Him and Goggins, morning. man. <laughs> <laughs> like, guys, take it easy, man. <laughs> but he, yeah, he has this idea, an extreme, uh, sorry, dichotomy of leadership. Essentially, it's um, the needs of the mission come at the expense of the needs of the people and the needs of the people come at the expense of the needs of the mission. And that is a fundamentally Taylorist idea. I would go as far as saying that that's a fundamentally anti-social idea. It reduces humans to things that can be managed. Yeah. Now, I understand why that might work in certain conditions, especially in the theater of war. But how does that play out in the corporate world? How does that play out as an entrepreneur, as a content creator, most knowledge work or most work these days? We don't have the same stakes. And even then, I would argue that there is a better way to persuade people. Leadership isn't positional. Leadership is uh, an act of persuasion. It's, it's a system of action designed to galvanize people towards a shared collective outcome. So with that being said, going back to your earlier question, what is the tripwire? How can people make that transition from management to leadership? I think it's about understanding, first of all, that the management paradigms that guided us thus far are actually really incompatible with the current conditions of our world. Our world is volatile, uncertain, complex, ambiguous. That's just one of the many acronyms that are out there to describe this time of great uncertainty. Insisting on management is to insist on trying to control the chaos. And we just can't control the chaos. Um, you know, we, we, can, we can lean into it. We can 
dance with it, but we can't parry it. We can't resist it. We can't fight it. And doing so produces inertia within an organization. And that inertia is ultimately what capsizes organizations. And, and the stats are staggering. I mean, McKinsey put out a report very recently that said that by the year 2027, which is not even the full decade, by the year 2027, I think like 75% of S&P 500 companies will go bankrupt, get broken up or get acquired. In one way or another, they will disappear. And that is just so wild to me because I'm looking at, you know, the setup over here. I've got an iMac. I'm, you know, drinking a Coca-Cola product. Uh, you know, I'm wearing a pair of Nikes here. I mean, all of these, all of these brands that are on the S&P 500, Fortune, I mean, Fortune 500 household names will cease to exist by the end of the decade. This is wild to me. Uh, it's absolutely wild. So the transition needs to be made yesterday towards leading people and and putting the needs of employees before anything else. And the, the the formula is very simple. If you put the need if you put anything before employee engagement and thriving, an organization fails. Right. Uh, but if you center your experience as a leader on helping your employees become productive, helping them achieve self-actualization, helping them to become leaders, because a leader's job is ultimately to create more leaders, that's how you win, as counterintuitive as that seems. Don't focus on the profits. That will come as a byproduct of focusing on the employees. If you take care of your employees, your employees will take care of the customers and the customers will ultimately take care of the profits. There's a couple of things I want to touch on there. Number one, Please. you mentioned you mentioned the idea of uh, the byproduct, right? And we talked and geeked out about productivity as well. Now, I don't believe that productivity is about efficiency and effectiveness. Those are byproducts of being productive. Productivity, Amen. to be productive is to... Link your intention, what you need or want to do, with your attention. How are you going to pay attention to it? Oh, gotta write that down. That's beautiful. That's that's what that is. Speed, efficiency, quality, all those things come after the fact. And right. also, those are subjective. One's efficiency is very subjective. So is effectiveness. So, frankly, is quality. You just have to read Robert Persig's book, his latest one that was released posthumously called On Quality. And he actually compares quality to time. It seems like everyone knows what it is, but when you dig deeper, like, oh, it isn't. Uh, I was watching um, Welcome to Wrexham, you know, the Ryan oh, Reynolds so series. Yeah, yeah. And the, Great. The, 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 the manager of the team mentioned moments of quality. Like, he's, yes. we're looking for moments of quality. And I stopped, I stopped it. I paused my, my, uh, my, the program, and I'm like, he isn't saying what that is. He isn't saying that it's a goal. He isn't saying it's a save. He isn't even saying that they're successful. He's just saying a moment of quality. So it could be like a shot that, that the striker makes and the goaltender on the opposite team stops it, but it's still a moment of quality, right? Mm -hmm. and, and so it's very, it's, it's interesting that you, you bring that up because I think what happens is we focus on the byproducts, but we can't get there without mm -hmm. the thing that leads do the byproducts. You know, we have to get to the product before we get to the byproduct, for lack of a better term. Secondly, and this one you bring up in the book, there's a quote in here, which I didn't realize was from the comics initially, because I've seen <laughs> it in the movie Civil yeah. War, which yeah. is said by, by Sharon Carter. Oh, says, Sharon Carter. Oh, she shit. says it yeah. at the eulogy of Peggy Carter. Right. And it's attributed to Peggy saying this, 
But in the comics, it's actually Captain America that says this. And this is related to integrity. When the mob and the press and the whole world tell you to move, your job is to plant yourself like a tree by the river of truth and tell the whole world, no, you move. And it's fascinating because, I mean, again, so I want to touch on integrity in a second because I believe that with, with this idea of us dealing with chaos and to paraphrase another Marvel character, Vision says that humans are odd and that they believe chaos and order are two different things, right? And then Dr. Fate, who, if you're looking, and I know you could see behind me right now, there's Dr. Fate right there. People go, oh, he works for the Lords of Order. No, he does not. Mm -hmm. He says he he works for balance. Yeah. He works for balance. You can't have chaos without order. You can't have order without chaos. And, And balance is never perfect equilibrium either. It's always, and if it is, it's for a brief moment, like a very, right. very brief moment. So when when we think about things like chaos, order, balance, and you bring up balance in the book, um, a leader, how does a leader start to lean into that stuff when it doesn't appear that, again, it's something that they're going to get measured on. Like they're going to look at their performance or when the, when the shareholders are coming down going, Hey, what about this? Like they're, they're not going to see it. How do you, how does, how does a, someone invest their time in there and b also not do it at the expense of the things that may very well have them maintain their job or their role in the company? Because I think that that that's a real fear that people have when they start to lean into this qualitative stuff that's harder to measure. Oh man, you're asking such excellent questions here. And by the time I, I feel the urge to respond to something that you said earlier, I'm already in another headspace. This is I'm gonna enjoy listening to this podcast again and again. Okay, I was recently in Barcelona speaking to or speaking uh, at a conference run by a, a sustainable paper company and packaging company known as Mondi M O N D I. I think it's like a three billion dollar company, and they have almost every market except Canada for some reason. I think we're 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 keeping them at bay. And there's probably one reason one company is probably keeping them out. <laughs> probably, probably, <laughs> yeah. I think it's Quebec core probably, but who knows? Pro- right? Probably. <laughs> hey. And I remember talking to their CFO and I, and I did a talk about human centric leadership and, and I, I stressed some of the ideas that we've touched upon thus far in this episode. And um, <clears throat> he said to me, yeah, I, I agree wholeheartedly. Like we, we need to put our people before profits and that's how we're, we're, you know, that's how we're transitioning as an organization. And then I asked him, I said, but you're also a publicly traded company. So how do you balance that? Because your, your shareholders are expecting quarterly returns. And he said something to me that just put a battery in my back. And I walk around with a puffed out chest whenever I have an opportunity to respond to this. And I say, it is possible. There is a company that's on the ASX 10 list right now that's living by this idea. And he said, if you're in this game <clears throat> for short-term results, you're in the wrong game. Don't invest in our company. And he says, as part of the prospectus, when you're investing in this company, you got to be here for the long haul or don't invest in this company. And I think about that all the time, especially in light of what Yvonne Schoenard did with Patagonia, relinquished 100% of his company to fight climate change. And there's uh, a quote that I put in Leadership Reinvented from Mark Benioff, Salesforce, who said that we need to go beyond, we need to transcend shareholder capitalism and usher in a new era of stakeholder capitalism. Uh, and do things that are good for people, employees, customers, communities, and the planet. So at the time of this recording, there is a massive shift, a paradigm shift, an upheaval happening in the business world in which business leaders are catching up to the realization of nonprofit leaders and government leaders that 
we can't exist at odds, that the pursuit, the lack of intention behind why these businesses exist is causing much of the imbalance that we're experiencing in the world today. And I love what you said earlier about productivity being the synchronicity between intention or the linking between intention with attention. I think for far too long, the business community's attention has been focused on many disparate goals that might be good for end users, but are not good for the planet as a whole. And so there's a reckoning happening right now where I think uh, business leaders are, are, are signaling to each other that there needs to be a broader intention that produces positive sum returns for everyone on the planet. So as I go, th- as I went through the book, <clears throat> and, and again, we talk about empathy, servitude, diversity, and innovation. And if, I like the way on the front, you didn't put them in the order of the <laughs> acronym. They're ESID or SD on the front. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 But... I will say that, you know, and I want you to touch on these, but in relationship to a very particular thing that I think keeps people, even even leaders who are striving, that may keep them from living or embodying these traits. So servitude, innovation, diversity, and empathy. All of these, I think, have one enemy, personal enemy in common, and that's the ego. I think, Bingo. I think the ego, so how... For each of those, servitude and innovation, like we talked about tripwires earlier. Yep. For someone who is struggling with that, to cast aside their ego, beyond reading Ryan Holiday's Ego is the Enemy, which is super helpful. <laughs> right. um, in that moment, like when they're thinking about it, how do they, how do they, how do they keep their ego in check? Knowing full well that the ego can serve a role to help them, because that's how they probably, part of the way, that, the reason that they got to the level that they're at. You can be healthy right. in that regard. But when it comes to these, there's vulnerability that shows up. There's these, the, the, you know, there's a lack of certainty, which we've already alluded to. So how does, how do you, how does the leader keep the ego in check when dealing with side? I'm, I'm, I'm excited to, to see where the world is at when this, this, this podcast is eventually published. I know that I'm taxied behind a couple of episodes, but a lot of research is now being done about the root cause of uh, socially aversive leadership, which is an oxymoron. I would just say management or just socially versus management in the workplace. And they're all pointing to a set of actions that are that are linked by, by a single axiom. So you think about the worst boss you've ever had. Think about like, you know, your, your psychopath, your narcissist, your Machiavellian boss, your sadistic boss. And, you know, you don't have to go that extreme, right? We're not going to go in the realm of, of Jocko Willink and Goggins. I've been a bad boss, man. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm sure that there's times in your career where you've behaved in a way uh, that, that you're not proud of. Absolutely. And in some ways that I didn't even realize very subtly, not, not, not to a level of where I realize I realized it after the fact, I'm like, Oh, that was shitty, but I did, yeah. but it wasn't overt. Right. That's the, that's the tricky part. Right. And I'll, I'll give a quick, quick story over here. And then I'll, I'll bring this point to a head about the ego and how to realize that in the moment and the tripwire. I love, I love that. I'm going to be thinking about that a lot. I was running a, um, digital marketing agency a couple of years ago, uh, one that I co-founded and I was heading up and I thought that I, I had my attention focused on the right things. I was in the press. I was uh, doing podcasts, interviews, radio. I was speaking at conferences. I was the face of the organization. I really enjoyed being that sort of shiny object and all the attention that I was getting. And in my mind, I thought that this was elevating the profile and awareness of the agency. 
And I thought that that would trickle down into leads, which would eventually learn into sales and then would feed the entire organization. I thought of myself as a rising tide lifting all boats. And then I remember our COO coming to me one week on the eve of an interview being published in the Toronto Star. And he said to me, we're not going to be able to make payroll this quarter. And I was like, what? When did this happen, man? Like, he's like, I've been telling you this. You just haven't been paying attention. I've been saying it in Slack. I've been saying it in our meetings. You're hardly there in the office. You know, we had to let go of these people. We lost these accounts. And he was just revealing the truth of an organization that I was becoming blind to, or by then I had become completely oblivious to. And I remember sitting uh, in my bed that night before I had to tell the team that they weren't going to get their, their payroll for that quarter. And I remember crying myself to sleep. I didn't sleep at all that night. And the next day we brought them into the boardroom and I had to look them in the eyes and tell them essentially why it was that they couldn't pay their rent, uh, why they didn't have a job anymore, why they couldn't take care of uh, you know, you know, their elderly and sick parents. It was just, I think about that and it just breaks my heart. And I'm just so ashamed of the way in which I behaved during that time in my life. And the reason why that, that, that confluence of, of issues converged into that failure and momentary failure was because I put everything before the needs of my team. I put myself, I put profits, I put vanity. Um, my, my, my intention was wrong. The things that I was focusing on, the things I had my attention on, were not anchored in any real intentional intention, uh, let alone shared intention. So all of this is to say, when you think about the, the, the anecdote that I just described right now, a well-intentioned boss, and you think about the worst bosses out there, the research shows that all of these socially aversive traits are, are undergirded by what's known as the D factor. Uh, and the D factor is ruthlessly putting your own needs before others' needs and justifying them with whatever narrative is necessary to keep you in that headspace. That seems to be the root of all evil. So ego, greed, selfishness, that is what is at the pit of essentially bad human behavior. And that is what is destroying many a company. That is what is, has historically destroyed companies uh, and what will continue to destroy companies. And so the tripwire is truly about understanding why you're doing what you're doing as a leader. Are you doing it to help your team? Because if you're not, you might be behaving in a way that's selfish. You might be selfish. And that over time will fester in the organization. As I, as I look through the book, and, and there's a lot in here, people need to pick it up. Leadership reinvented. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Um, one thing that I can't recall if it's in there, but I imagine it's probably a good tool is journaling. You just talked about that. Like you just talked about the very thing that probably, I don't know if it would have pulled you out of it, but it might have, because when the phrase well-intentioned always sounds fat. It's a fa I'm a word nerd. It's fascinating to me because when yeah. someone says, well, it was well-intentioned, there's immediately like, no one goes, oh, well, it's good then. No, well-intentioned normally means something <laughs> bad happens. Like, well, he meant well. <laughs> or like, it, it, there, there's a, <laughs> there's a, there's a like, it, 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 it's, it's not a cop. Well, it could be a cop-out, I guess. It could be considered to sure. be a cop-out, right? I'm not saying that that's what you did, but I'm just saying that when, if a pattern emerges of that, then you know, okay, well, wait a minute. He's, is he really well-intentioned or is it, right. or is it, am I, and maybe it's not you're a bad person or the person's a bad, but they're missing the boat. They're missing the message. So yes. if someone, 
is a is a tactic that you use. First off, do you journal? And secondly, do you think it's a helpful <laughs> tactic for someone who wants to really level up their leadership skills for lack for for lack of a better term? Mike, I've been waiting to answer this question for anyone listening to this podcast right now that isn't journaling. Take this from a guy that used to laugh at journals, that used to mock people who journaled. You know, I came up in, in the rough and tumble streets of Scarborough, I'm not saying that I was part of any sort of criminal activity or whatnot, but certainly the osmosis of that ethos, that journaling is something that, for lack of a better phrase, boys don't do or men don't do. I internalize that. I'm like, F that. I'm not going to journal. Who journals? My sister journals. You know, I was I I was so wrong. Journaling has been the closest thing to a silver bullet in my not just career but in my life, in terms of developing self awareness. Without which you cannot develop resilience. Self awareness and resilience are linked. Um, and we can go into a whole other thing about resilience and productivity, the relationship there. But in terms of helping me develop self awareness, uh, there's there's no tool, there's no practice, there's nothing in my current stack of productivity that is more effective than journaling. I don't do it enough. I, I aim to do it twice a day. Uh, at best, I'll do it like once right before I go to sleep or first thing in the morning. But I find it best to do it first in the morning, first thing in the morning, uh, right before I go to bed. And then on the weekends when I have more time, some longer reflective writing. The benefits are tremendous. Please, 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 if you're not in the habit of journaling, get in the habit. It'll be, it'll be a game changer for you. Um, before we wrap up, couple things. Uh, we talked about integrity, which I think is, um, what do they say? Integrity is doing, knowing, doing what you, doing good things, knowing that you're not going to be watched, I think, or something like that, or, you know, doing them, knowing that doing it, even though no one's watching, I think is the quote that I've Love heard. It. Uh, um, the, a lot of the stuff that gets mentioned in the book requires those kind of deeper, emotional human elements that are hard to, we talked about why they're hard because maybe numerically, quantitative, quantitatively, stuff like that. But the pace of time, the pace of the world, maybe not the pace of time, but the pace of the world, the pace, the perceived pace of time maybe even is a better way to, to frame it, which is also a reason why people don't journal other than the whole like, Dudes don't journal, which, by the way, there is a video, which we'll link in the show notes, where Matthew McConaughey says, dudes journal. The guy wrote hey. a whole book based on it. But anyway, yeah. it's a short video. Green lights. <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, the the world, the other reason that people, A, don't journal, at least the most common thing I hear, or that they just don't reach where they want to go is because uh, everything's just so fast. Um, the world's moving too quickly. I'm so quote busy, right? You know, um, and you could throw all the platitudes out of like, you know, the whole, well, the, the answer busy, what are you busy about? Like all those things, but that doesn't change. Those kind of things don't change people's minds because they've heard it often enough. It becomes noise, right? So someone who wants to, you know, reinvent themselves as a leader or follow, you know, the elements that you've gone through in this book and better still avoid burnout, which we've taught, which you also mm -hmm. have written about. How do they deal with the pace? How do they, how, how does someone recognize uh, or, or at least navigate is probably better the way the, of the, the way of the world in terms of pacing and, you know, kind of have a cadence about themselves that will allow them to dig into stuff like this. That is a, that is a big question. And, um, 
I think, I think treating the journal like a check-in with yourself um, is, is certainly one way to approach this, this exercise to just maybe have some structured prompts at first. That's how I got into journaling. I had some structured prompts. It just said, you know, how are you feeling today? How would you like to feel by the end of the day? Uh, what did you not get done yesterday that you want to get done today? There were some very tactical prompts. And once I developed a cadence with responding to them and letting go of some of my anxiety and feelings of frustration of not being productive enough, but then also aligning my emotions, aligning my future state of being with my current state of being, that's when I felt permission to then go off the script a little bit. And now my journals are free form. I actually don't even have structured journals anymore. I just buy blank notebooks. Yep. And the journals go where they, where they go. So it's been a tool that I'm currently uh, using right now to help me keep burnout at bay. I, I, this has been probably the most intense year of my life in terms of productivity and stressors. Um, if you look at the homes and raw stress scale, I'm, I'm north of 600 over there in terms of life transitions alone. What the journaling has helped me to do is to reframe those things that are causing stress in my life as things that produce good stress, E-U-S-T-R-E-S-S versus distress. And that's the only tool that I have right now. Without my journaling, I would not be in any shape to do this podcast. I would be curled up in a ball somewhere crying, I might be in, in the hospital. I mean, I'm not advocating this level of productivity and output for anyone. It was just a cascade of priorities that uh, have been accumulating during the pandemic that all converged in a single year. That's a part wedding. Of it. That's part yeah. of it. That's part of it. The, the world is spinning fat, like it's trying to catch up to the time it lost. Can't do that. It's yeah. not possible. In fact, if anything, we should be reflecting on the fact that nothing absolutely catastrophic, for the most part, I mean, I mean I'm being very general, happened sure. when the world slowed down. Yes, the pandemic, people died. There was a lot, but the world kept going. Time kept right. marching on. And it's it's the it's the equivalent of as we're recording this, we are going to be falling back into daylight uh standard time, right? Yes. As of this weekend. Uh, you know, again, uh we're we're well well into the new year by the time you're listening to this, but the most famous thing that you hear when the clock clock look I'm gonna be able to catch up on some sleep. Not really. <laughs> not really. No, the whole, everything's shifting. So you're not really gain. I mean, you, you, yeah. you could argue that you're going to gain an hour, but there's some people like, oh, well, you know, like it's time to work like that. And, and the fact of the matter is, and so unfortunately you're facing this reality of things that were on pause are being sped right back up. And that's it. the only way you're coping with it, because you can't control it. It's, 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 it's cope what you can't, what you can't control, command what mm -hmm. you can you're mm -hmm. at a point, the only thing you can command is the way you're responding to it. And that's it. That's it. And making meaning of those experiences is, is absolutely critical. And there's a direct connection, as I alluded to earlier, between your ability to reflect, develop self-awareness, make meaning, and to build the resilience necessary to outlast the pace of change that is not going to let up anytime soon. No, no. <laughs> um, Hamza, this has been a great conversation. I actually know of someone that I want to connect you with. Um, they'll probably have had you on the show provided that <laughs> you could make time. Yeah. Um, because this person, my friend Russell, he talks about like the importance of employee engagement and employee wow. and dealing with leaders, uh, relationships. I'd be honored. And, and, and so I'll definitely connect you with him because he, and he, I think he's been on the program before as well. I know he's spoken at, at, at some stuff that I've done before, but this has been great. Hamza, this has been a great conversation. I know we could keep going and we definitely should revisit this. Um, speaking of another reword it's leadership uh -huh. reinvented um 
you know, how to foster empathy, servitude, diversity, and an innovation in the workplace. Hamza, where can people keep up with you and pick up this book? Sure. And that's a great title for a sequel. Leadership Reinvented, Revisited. Where can people find out more about me and, and find copies of the book? Uh, write it by the book, rather. It's hamzakhan.ca. That's H-A-M-Z-A-K-H-A-N.ca. But I've also aggregated all of my links and all the things that I'm working on at hamzak.com. That's H-A-M-Z-A-K.com. Awesome. Hamza, thanks so much for having a productive conversation with me today. Thank you, sir. We did share some of the things that he regularly shares, you know, leadership, resilience, productivity. Great conversation. Glad you were here for it. Glad that he was able to join me as well. If you want to get all of the relative links and show notes, you can do that at productivityist.com slash podcast 466. If you want to support the show, another thing you can do is visit the website and check out the sponsors that you heard during this episode. All you need to do is go to productivityist.com slash podcast sponsors. To make that happen. And another way to support the show, of course, is to subscribe to the podcast. So where you're listening to this right now, just hit the subscribe button. That way you don't miss a single episode of what's to come. And there's more to come. Trust me on that. Until next time, I'm Mike Vardy, the host of A Productive Conversation, reminding you to stop doing productive and start being productive. See you later.